Stay tuned after the feature for a very special message. And now, our feature presentation. Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. Those who remember hearing our list of the top six things we would never review might remember that one of those things was about guilty pleasures, and that those particular pleasures were represented by this guy. We mentioned that although the Jerry Springer show certainly has its fair share of fans and detractors, we figured that some people would watch the show simply because they hate to watch it and still get an odd sense of satisfaction as they do. Do you want to be with his boyfriend? No. Oh, so that he was He thirsty. Just... That's all he need. What? <laughs> but that was then. The reason why we start things off with Springer today is because of the fact that, as a reminder, the show was named by TV Guide in a 2002 list of the worst TV shows of all time as the Alpha, the Omega the end-all, be-all, worst TV show of all time at that time. Many years later, Springer, who I'm certain is a good person in spite of his show, spoke to TV Guide in a 2019 interview and relished on the honor, saying, quote, Clearly, I deserved it. I kept thinking about the poor show that came in second place. Because if you're the second worst show ever, no one remembers you. If you're going to win a contest, for Christ's sake, win it. Which brings us to the tale of a completely different Jerry, and by association, his more famous brother. From one of the worst shows of all time to, without argument, one of the greatest shows of all time. Between a cast with the best TV chemistry since I Love Lucy and the skillful writing of series creator Carl Reiner, The Dick Van Dyke Show was one of those shows that, if it had any flaws at all, they'd be microscopic to the naked eye. And just as the show was starting to be popular throughout the 1960s, the creative minds thought it would be a good idea to let the other Van Dyke brother in on the fun. In the psychiatrist's office, and he's all orange and blue and purple and green all over, and he's got a pelican on his head, and the pelican has a fish in his mouth. And they walk up to the psychiatrist, and the pelican says, Say, can you tell me how to get this guy out from under my feet? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all right, Greg, it's part of the act. Jerry Van Dyke, who already had a well-established career of his own at that point, would appear on the show several times in the series' five-year run as Rob Petrie's brother, Stacy. For the most part, his appearances on the show were well-received. So much so that the other networks wanted to put Jerry into his own show in the hopes that lightning would strike twice for the Van Dyke bloodline. One network in particular was able to seal the deal. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. The network not only secured the talents of Van Dyke... But they also managed to recruit a pair of up-and-coming comedy writers to put together what would turn out to be Van Dyke's first major starring vehicle. Quite literally in this case. Well, 
What follows is the tale of a show that, not unlike Jerry Springer, has since wound up with as many defenders as it does detractors. What was said by TV Guide to be the second worst TV series ever made. But as time marches on, we have to ask ourselves, does it really, truly deserve that title? Just in time for Mother's Day, we hope to pull this classic clunker out of the junkyard of Telehell. Aside from Jerry Van Dyke, two other major players in this story are that of comedy writers Alan Burns and Chris Hayward, both of whom got their starts writing for various late 50s and early 60s cartoon series. Most notably, this one. Rocky and Bullwinkle show was a rare breed for early 60s TV. It was a cartoon that, while it was aimed for a kid's audience, had a surprisingly high rating when it came to adults watching. This is due in part to there being densely layered jokes and fourth wall breaking for something that aired on a typical Saturday morning. It's a mine! It's a yours! He was my uncle! You know what A-bomb means? Certainly! A-bomb is what some people call our program! Bullwinkle, he's a dummy! Please, Rock, you were speaking of our host. You know what a mirage is! Sure, it's where you park your car! The show aired on NBC from 1960 to 1963. Afterwards, the newly formed writing team of Burns and Hayward teamed up with Bullwinkle creator Jay Ward for a CBS made-for-TV special called The Nuthouse, which aired in 1964. While there's very limited footage for that program available, the best way I could describe The Nuthouse was that it was Rowan and Martin's laugh-in before they added the psychedelics to the formula. The special was a hit, and the work of Burns and Hayward wound up catching the attention of NBC, who then tapped the duo to come up with a new sitcom idea for the upcoming 1965 TV season. One that, given the still-experimental sandbox feel of primetime television at the time, felt like something worth trying no matter how ludicrous it may have sounded. After all, shows like My Favorite Martian and the Munsters were already on the air at that time, and the equally classic I Dream of Genie would debut this year, too. So it's not like the notion of a far-fetched idea was unestablished on television. But sometimes, there are limits as to just how much you're willing to buy into a premise. With that said, Burns and Hayward's idea couldn't be any simpler. A family man is seeking out a new car for his typical average family. And while shopping for new cars, he comes across a rather worn-out and broken-down 1928 Porter automobile, which he nearly skips over until he hears the voice of his long-deceased mother coming from the radio. In other words, the man's mother is now the car. Hence the title, My Mother the Car. Everybody knows in a second life we all come back sooner or later. As anything from a pussy cat to a man-eating alligator. And were this a sane world that we lived in, even back then, NBC would have said no to the show faster than one would say no to an extended warranty. 
And yet, for some reason, Robert E. Kittner and Robert Sarnoff, who both ran the network at the time, must have seen something brilliant in an otherwise head-scratching concept, because the show was greenlit for a 1965 fall launch. In an effort to make sure that people would look beyond just how bizarre the premise for the show was, Burns and Hayward made sure that the show was stacked from top to bottom with the right talent, both on screen and off. First, on screen. We already mentioned Jerry Van Dyke as the show's main character, Dave Crabtree. But we should also mention that at this point in his career, after lugging multiple appearances on his brother's TV show, Van Dyke was also a mainstay on The Ed Sullivan Show and Judy Garland's variety series on CBS. He even managed to get a few small movie roles, most notably in John Wayne's McClintock. But before getting locked in the car, Van Dyke was given the chance to be the lead actor in another CBS series, which, after reading the script for, Van Dyke wisely turned down the part because he thought the show would never be a hit. And that show was... Yes, Jerry Van Dyke blew off a chance to become Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. Further proof that we all make mistakes once in a while. Especially big ones. Once Van Dyke realized how big a mistake he made, he swore he would say yes to the next idea that came his way. Enter Burns and Hayward, who pitched Van Dyke on the idea. And naturally, thinking about how big of a hit Mr. Ed was, which happened to have an identical concept, he said yes. Rounding out the cast were veteran character actress Maggie Pierce, who had logged screen time previously for shows like Wagon Train, The Fugitive, Alfred Hitchcock, and others. Pierce would play Van Dyke's wife in the hopes that this would help springboard her career. <laughs> Couldn't say that with a straight face. Meanwhile, child actors Cindy Eliebacher and Randy Whipple would play Van Dyke's eponymously named children, Cindy and Randy. Of course, you can't have a show about a car that talks without somebody to do all the talking. Burns and Hayward were looking for a comedienne of the old school, someone they grew up watching and thought was funny enough to pull off the premise. Originally, Burns and Hayward had their sights set on the likes of Gene Arthur and Eve Arden, who both appeared in their fair share of madcap movies which were the style of the time. Unfortunately, the network passed on both after realizing that the car should be more motherly than madcap. The other name that the producers had in mind was not only no stranger to television, but would probably fit the motherly veneer a little more securely. And now, the Ann Southern Show. Starring Ann Southern. After a few years of a successful sitcom under her belt, Ann Southern would return to television as the voice of Gladys, the mother that powered the car. Finally, for good measure, the show also added a foil to Van Dyke's family, an eccentric car collector who would stop at nothing to obtain the family's porter and its inhabitant. I suppose the show was already pretty fantastical, so why not add a cartoonish supervillain? The collector, named Captain Manzini, uh, would be played by up-and-coming comedian, future partner to Jack Burns, and wannabe Gene Shalit cosplayer, Avery Schreiber. Fight on for old upstate you. Hey. Fight on till you're black and blue. Hey. Wave your banner high and true. Hey. For good old upstate you. Hey, 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 hey. 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 
There's no singing in the cab. How many times do I have to tell you that? Time and time again, there's no singing in the cab. All right, I'm sorry. Relax, relax. The only there. Come on. Then you have the writing and producing team. One that had to be the top of the line if they were to successfully execute a premise that would make even scantily clad genies and horses that could talk look normal by comparison. Fortunately, Burns and Hayward knew some guys who knew some other guys. Granted, you've probably never heard of such names like Phil Davis, George Kirgo, Arnold Margolin, or Jim Parker. But we mention the writers specifically because of one other person who joined the staff. An up-and-coming young scribe by the name of James Lawrence Brooks, which would later be shortened to James L. Brooks. Yes, that James L. Brooks. The same one who was practically responsible for most of the best of television from the 1970s and onwards. Room 222? Mary Tyler Moore? Rhoda? Lou Grant? Taxi? The Tracy Ullman Show? The Simpsons? No need to thank him personally. In fact, it was because of Brooks's work on Mother that the Simpsons were able to poke fun at it in a roundabout way decades later. Now he's the love-matic grandpa, the bisocratic grandpa. Of course, you can't have any show of any kind without somebody to direct it all. Fortunately, Burns and Hayward were able to recruit the talents of one Mr. Rodney Amateu. What? What's so bad about this guy? What? It says he worked on shows like Gilligan's Island, Dobie Gillis, even Mr. Ed. He sounds perfect for a show like this. What's the problem? Oh, wait, there's more. Uh, It says that in his later years, he helped produce and direct several episodes of... Super Trade. And that he was also the director, producer, and writer of... The Garbage Pale Kids movie who, by sheer coincidence, also happens to have a character in it named Captain Manzini. Each day after school, Dodger works in a junk shop owned by the mysterious Captain Manzini. Which is broth and vampire's brew. Make these clothes as good as new. Dodger has never had a... Well... At the risk of judging a book by its cover, I'd say that we're in very good hands here. You see that, Mr. President? That's what sarcasm sounds like. Anyway, now that the car has been fully assembled, all that's left to do is to stick some test dummies in the front seat and crash it, which we will do... After the break. The big story in NBC plans is entertainment. The network will have more new shows this fall than you can shake a stick at. And don't think the critics won't be trying. Imagine, 15 new weekly programs, the largest number of new shows at one time for NBC since, well, since the Spanish Armada. (laughs) Now, let's see some bits from these new shows. My mother, the car. It seems there's this nice young fellow who buys a certain old car after finding out its radio brings in the voice and advice of his departed mother. This is a series destined to become an instant favorite. Not only with used car dealers, 
find it hard communicating with their children. Monday, Hullabaloo, John Forsythe, Dr. Kildare, Andy Williams, Run for Your Life. Tuesday, My Mother the Carb, Please Don't Eat the Daisies, Dr. Kildare, Tuesday Night Movies. Wednesday, The Virginian, Bob Hope, and I Spy. Thursday, Daniel Boone, Laredo, Mona McCluskey, and Dean Martin. Friday, Camp Runamuck, Hank, Convoy, Mr. Roberts, The Man from Uncle. Saturday, Flipper, I Dream of Jeannie, Get Smart, Saturday Night Movies. Sunday, Telephone Hour, Walt Disney, Brandon, Bonanza, and Wackiest Chip. Stay tuned after the feature for a very special message. September 14th, 1965. The war in Vietnam reached its halfway point with the worst of fighting yet to come. Pop charts were switching back and forth between Help by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction at number one. And at 7.30, 6.30 Central and Mountain, we start off the second worst TV show of all time with the aforementioned stroll through a used car lot. Jerry Van Dyke ambles around while inexplicable Dixieland funeral music is playing in the background when he spots the equally aforementioned 1928 Porter automobile. He's just about to pass it by when suddenly... Hello, Davy. Oh, Mother. No, Davy, you really heard something. It's me. But just don't sit there with your mouth hanging open. Say hello. Mother? And if that first minute of the show wasn't reason enough for NBC to pass on a turkey in the making, then perhaps the show's opening theme song will. Everybody knows in a second life we all come back sooner or later. As anything from a pussy cat to a man-eating alligator. Well, you all may think my story is more fiction than it's fact. And this would be a good time to bring up the differences between a good TV theme song and a bad one. A good TV theme song can do one of two things. If it's an instrumental piece, it can bring you into its world without saying a word. Let the music do the talking, so to speak. Or if you're a song with words in it, you should use those words in a subtle enough way that you know what the show's going to be about without being too blunt. My Mother the Car is the complete opposite of that, boldly telling you what the show's premise is in a matter of 57 seconds, after which point the viewer will have fully digested what that premise is, and then change the channel because they don't want to be witness to a second more. So much so that hearing the opening horn section... is a better psychological signal to the viewer than a bell to Pavlov's dog. Moving on, Van Dyke is understandably in a state of shock. Now, son, take it easy. You'll probably go through the roof when you hear this, but this is your mother talking. David, I've come back. Oh! David, be careful. You'll break your collarbone again. And it's all downhill from here. You sure looking great. Uh... How's every, uh, did, I didn't think things like this were possible. No, you didn't, huh? Well, I understand there's a baseball team called the Mets. 
If that's possible, I'm possible. Okay, I, I kind of have to give them credit for that joke. Not just because I'm a life and death long Yankees fan, but it almost makes the show timeless. But now we find out a little bit more about exactly how and why Mother came back as a car. Can anybody come back like this? Well, most of us don't want to. As a matter of fact, the application bin is usually empty. But I came back because you need help, son. Did I say a little more? Because not only was that barely an explanation, but that's just about all the backstory we're going to get with why this is even happening in the first place. At least other forms of media involving the afterlife go through some sort of detailed process as to how their afterlife is being fulfilled. Here, it's just, I'm a car now. Neat. How, aside from a throwaway line about paperwork, did she actually become the car? Did she piss off St. Peter at the pearly gates? Did she make a number of backhanded comments about Henry Ford while she was alive and her punishment is to live out her afterlife as a car? Did she dismiss cars as a passing fad because she thought the horse and buggy would last forever? We won't know, and neither will the writers. Because taking a quick glance at the rest of the series, there is not one solid explanation as to why this is happening in the first place. It can't just put in a throwaway line and expect us to go all in on the premise. Maybe on a 21st century show it could have worked, but audiences in the mid-1960s had more than a couple of brain cells to rub against each other to want something more out of their storylines. Regardless of that oversight, Van Dyke is trying to make sense of it all. Even if I do need help, I don't see what good you can do me as a 1928 porter. Well, dear, we don't get a choice. I know somebody else who came back as an Edsel. Did I raise my very own son to leave his very own mother sitting on a used car lot? So, before you wonder if the mother in question was raised either Jewish or Catholic, a guilty Van Dyke takes the porter home where the aberrational automobile preps him on just how he's going to break the news to his family. I know. Why don't you try telling her that my motor is worth twice what you paid for me? Well, I couldn't do that. Why couldn't you do that? Because I want to tell her the truth, that's why. The truth? But she'd never believe you. For the sake of your marriage, David, lie. Just lie. Oh, no. This is going to be one of those shows, isn't it? You know the kind. The one where a supernatural occurrence takes place and it has to be kept a secret because of reasons. No specific reasons in general, just reasons. And again, it's not like it's unprecedented to do that in any form of medium, but at least shows like Bewitched and I Dream of Genie do that because there are legitimate reasons and stakes for neither of them to be found out. Here, it's just... Don't tell anybody just because. Either that or the becauses haven't been written or established yet. Still, though, Van Dyke takes Mother home to a shocked and bemused family. Look, if there's one thing I know, and I mean really know, it's my own wife. You don't know me at all, David Crabtree, if you think you can bring this home instead of a station wagon. Bar, Randy, Cindy, I want you all to brace yourselves. This car... This car right here did talk to me and, and plead and beg me to take her home. Now, I say her because this car is my mother. And before you think to yourself, wait, so after being explicitly told not to tell the truth, he tells the truth anyway, keep in mind that we're only seven minutes into the show, and for everybody to accept it right away would mean that there is no show at all. 
So, go on. After you hit your head and the car started talking, did it talk words? Sure, honey, regular words. In English, I suppose. Of course, in English, Barbs, what else? Oh, I don't know. It could be a foreign car. Even if it was a foreign car, it wouldn't talk a foreign language. It wouldn't? All cars talk English? All cars don't talk at all, Barbs. They're cars. Cars don't talk. Yeah, I'd like to present a rebuttal to that claim, if I may. Michael, we're approaching a residential neighborhood. And that show about a talking car was meant to be taken seriously. See what a difference 20 years can make? But once again, I digress. Naturally, as the family is opposed to Van Dyke buying the car for such outlandish and implausible reasons. Reasons that could simply be diffused if, say, the car actually started to talk in front of the family and help prove them right. But, because it's one of those shows, only Van Dyke can hear his mother. And if this show took place in the 21st century, the next shot we'd see would be him in a straitjacket while muttering to himself that he can taste the color 12. Instead, Van Dyke does a quick about-face and says the thing Motor Mom tells him to do in the first place. I'd like to point out that the motor alone is worth twice what I paid for the whole car. You don't really believe that terrible car your mother, do you, Dave? It was just another one of your lousy jokes, wasn't it? That's it, a lousy joke, honey. What kind of joke is that in front of the kids? Lousy, just like you said, is a lousy joke, and I'm sorry. You scared me. I'm, I'm awful sorry, honey. At least everything's back to normal now. Not quite. For one thing, we're not speaking. What? And I wouldn't leave that car in the driveway if I were you. Today is trash day. Act 2 begins with the first appearance of our frequent foil, Avery Schreiber as Captain I-can't-believe-I-share-the-same-name-as-that-guy-from-the-garbage-pail-kids movie, Manzini. And the best way I could describe this guy is if one of Jay Ward's cartoon characters that Bergson Hayward wrote for came to life. Schreiber discovers the porter and tries to make a deal with Van Dyke. I'm an antique car collector. I heard there was a 28 porter for sale over on the used car lot. When I got there, it was gone. (laughs) Yeah, I bought it. So I see. Are you a collector, Mr... Crabtree. David Crabtree. No, no, I'm not a collector. Well, I'm interested in buying this car. Fortunately, Mother comes with her own security system, long before they were ever a thing. Because all electrocutions deserve peppy, upbeat Dixieland jazz, right? Hell, John Baptiste and Stay Human wouldn't be the same without a medieval torture rack. comes to and gets a little more aggressive with Van Dyke. Oh, and by the way, this part of the conversation... Cranston, listen. Crabtree. Whatever. I'm in love with this car. I hope you enjoyed hearing that joke, because the show took it upon itself to repeat that joke ad nauseum. Every chance it gets. Cranbrook, you have just made yourself an enemy. That's Crabtree. Whatever. Ah, Lady Crabtree. Crabtree. Whatever. Allow me to introduce myself. What do you think of that, Cranberry? That's Crabtree and no. It's a bit steep, isn't it, Crabcake? Crabtree. Good day, Captain Bandini. It's Manzini. Whatever. A deft ploy, Crumpets. That's Crabtree. Whatever. I've been calling her Crandall. Why didn't someone tell me? Oh, I've been making an idiot out of myself. And with the exception of Homer, that was just this episode alone. Now, multiply that by 30 shows. 30? 30? 
30 episodes this ran? Couldn't NBC just put on reruns of Bonanza in its place? Anyway, Van Dyke then tries to convince his wife that Picard can talk with... Hilarious results. Well, you're gonna feel pretty sheepish when you hear what you're gonna hear. Hi, Mom. Just thought I'd come down and say goodnight. Night. Mom, you sleep already? Mom. Mom, wake up, Mom. Kinda kinda warm tonight, Mom. How about a how about a glass of ice water? And again, we're hit with a double-edged sword. Naturally, this can all be resolved if the car just spoke for the rest of the family. But then, if it did that, the major conflict would be resolved, and there would be no series. But once again, no set rules were ever established as to why the big secret couldn't be revealed. It's just hush up for no rhyme or reason. Hopefully a reason is given after Van Dyke's wife leaves the garage. How many times do I have to tell you, Davey? No eyewitnesses. The Smithsonian Institute, do you remember? Those drafty floors me, she talks. those people staring. That's not for me. Boy, does she talk. Just like your mom. So, that's why? She just doesn't want to be seen? Granted, that is certainly a reason, but it's a pretty flimsy one. Given the chance, I'd love to be displayed at a museum for whatever reason. But I guess modesty was a bigger thing in the 60s than it is now. The next day, Van Dyke takes his mother out for a day of pampering, which in vehicular form means a car wash, paint job, and a tune-up. All while Manzini follows Van Dyke through the car wash, flashing giant cue cards worth of price offers. Van Dyke soundly rejects them. Hilarity ensues. For about two minutes. I'm not kidding, either. This sequence that's free of any dialogue whatsoever takes forever. Which, if you're a fan of visual humor, that's all fine and good. But as a podcast, this kind of puts us shit out of luck. However, I do have to give them a sliver of credit for one other visual joke during the sequence. When the car is getting painted, Van Dyke takes it to a place called A Shribe, which is actually two references in one. First, to co-star Avery Schreiber, but more so a reference to everybody's favorite painter of cars, the legendary Earl Scheib. I'm Earl Scheib. I'll paint any car for just $99.95. Right. I'll paint any car for just $99.95. Granted, most of his work was only known to the West Coast, but I still gotta credit the show for a densely layered visual gag. Suddenly, we hear the theme song once again. Everybody knows in the second life we all come back sooner or later. As anything from a pussycat to a alligator. Away you and it's still stupid the second time around. But as long as the theme is playing, this would be a good chance to talk about the Porter itself, which according to Popular Mechanics magazine really is as rare as Captain Manzini makes it out to be. So much so that what you see on the show is not really a Porter at all. According to them, the car was a combination of era-appropriate parts from other car makers like Chevy, Maxwell, and Hudson, while the body of the car was a reconstituted Ford Model T. And while we've been knocking the show so far, we truly have to give credit where credit is due to the car's maker. One, Mr. Norman Grabowski, who designed cars for the old 77 Sunset Strip program. After the car was made and Grabowski sold it to the show, another car designer named George Barris, who was responsible for making cars for the 
Munsters, the Beverly Hillbillies, and the 1960s Batmobile, was then made responsible for making a duplicate version of the car for the series' various stunt scenes. As for where both porters are today, the details are largely hearsay and conjecture. Some rumors state that one of the cars was purchased by a private, non-Manzini collector in Canada. Others say that the stunt porter was bought by a casino owner in Las Vegas. Otherwise, the whereabouts of both porters remains a mystery. Getting back to the story, the car looks better than new. And upon showing the new and improved car to the family, they're actually happy about it. What happened to the old car? It is the old car, Sin, only with a, with a new paint job and some fiction up here and there. <laughs> kind of like Cinderella, huh? Dave, it's beautiful. I don't mind it at all now. Thanks, honey. The way you got it fixed up, somebody is sure to buy it. Up until the wife puts up a for sale sign. And guess who comes back to make an offer? Ah, dear lady, how much were you contemplating for this old car? Oh, well... Ah, you drive a hard bargain. So be it. A thousand dollars. A thousand dollars? Cash. What do you think of that, Cranberry? That's Crabtree and no. Dave! Oh, honey. Van Dyke then tries to make a breakaway with the Mothermobile. But Mother offers this bit of advice. Honey, this isn't as big a problem as you think. All you have to do is get Manzini to offer $1,500 for me. Well, see how that solves anything. Get him to make the offer in front of Barbara. But I still don't see... Now listen, Manzini started out by offering $400, right? Now he's upping the price to 1000 Doesn't it stand to reason that the longer you hold out, the higher he'll go? Uh-huh. I... I think I have a good idea where this is heading, but let me be sure first. Doesn't it only stand the reason that the longer we hold out, the higher his price will go? He'll offer us $1,500 for the car. Oh, he'll never go that high. Oh, yes, he will. He won't. He will. He won't. He will. $1,500 and the car is mine? One, two, three, Captain. Four, five, no. six, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. No! So he rejected the offer in front of his wife just to make himself look good for her? Well, nothing says family sitcom like being coerced by another family member, and a dead one at that, to do something that seems highly questionable. Even more insane, the wife is actually swooning a little over the gambit. It happened just the way you said it would. Yeah. When did you suddenly start getting so shrewd? When I bought that car. Honey, get the children. Anything you say, dear. We're going to have dinner where the whole family could be together. I'm confused. Was the whole point of this story because Ma Carburetor wanted to see her son be less of a wimp in front of his wife? If so, that problem should have been better established. Even more so, if I were married and I were to offer somebody $1,500 to buy something and then immediately reject the buyer in front of my wife, I'd probably be slapped with divorce papers for rejecting probably the biggest financial transaction I've seen in years. Truly, this is a fantasy TV show, which mercifully comes to an end with this coda. I certainly helped you with the Manzini problem, didn't I? No offense, Mother, but there wouldn't have been a Captain Manzini problem if you hadn't come back to help me. It's only the beginning. It is? Sure, that's what mothers are for. Oh, and darling, thank you for today. It was the nicest homecoming day a 1928 porter ever had. Good night, Mom. Good night, dear. It's been a long day, but a nice one.
Well, for you, that was only the beginning. But thankfully, the TV viewers of 1965 had much better sense than most. As we said, this car accident lasted 30 episodes until it was ultimately brought to the scrap heap in April of 1966. And now after taking a look at the pilot, as well as a handful of other moments from the series, I have to ask, is this show truly as bad as people say it is? Even more so, is this show truly deserving not only of that reputation, but also of TV Guide's positioning of the show as the second worst TV show of all time? Well, consider the fact that the TV Guide list came out in 2002, and that there have been far worse TV shows to have come and gone since then. Just to name one example. So, perhaps adjusting for inflation, maybe My Mother the Car certainly belongs a lot lower on that list now than more deserving shows that should take the position. Of course, this doesn't fully answer the question of whether or not it deserves to have that kind of reputation in the first place. Long answer? The show is certainly cheesy as hell, even for the 1960s but it was also the product of a time far different than modern day. You have to realize that television was still in a period of infancy and experimentation back then, and a lot of show creators were trying things out just to see what their creative limitations were. If that wasn't the case, shows like Mr. Ed, Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, or even fellow TV guide worst of all time contender The Flying Nun would probably never have been given a fair shot. In fact, Burns and Hayward were aware of just how popular these shows have been. Which is why, and here comes the twist ending, they originally wrote the show as a parody of those other shows. That's right. A show about someone's mother getting reincarnated as a car was never meant to be taken seriously. Even show co-creator Alan Burns himself says so in a 2015 interview with the Television Academy, which we'll link you to on our social pages. So, to that regard... Maybe the show wound up getting lost in translation because there were already a number of fantastical shows out there that one more show with an out-there premise will wind up blending in with all the others despite their intentions. And personally, I just saw it as a cheesy sitcom competing with equally cheesy sitcoms and failing miserably in the process. Short answer, no. My Mother the Car does not deserve to be dragged through the mud as often as it's been. Don't get us wrong, this is far from the echelons of TV comedy like an I Love Lucy or a Dick Van Dyke, but having sat through a number of these episodes, the only thing we can really fault it for is the fact that it may have been too fantastical for an era that was already full of ridiculous premises that have since gone down in history as TV classics. Yes, even more fantastical than talking horses, witches, genies, and lightweight airborne nuns. My Mother the Car can also be considered a classic. Granted, it's classic for all the wrong reasons. There will certainly be a cluster of people popping up from time to time to see what all the fuss is about. But there's an insurmountable difference between a show like this and a show like Jerry Springer. One is a fantasy comedy with a premise that's hard to swallow, even though it's supposed to be a tongue-in-cheek spoof of other fantasy comedies. The other involves throwing chairs at guests and taking a turn on a stripper pole the next minute. The comparison could not be any more apples to oranges. Then again, what some could consider good or bad is all in the eye of the beholder. Some people are willing to defend Springer's show to the death if they had to, and I'm sure there are others that are willing to defend my mother the car. Of course, this doesn't mean that the show is without any sins. 
and we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't point them out. Even Diamonds in the Rough can still have its flaws. So, where does My Mother the Car get placed in the auto showroom of Telehell? Earl Scheib may paint any car for $99.99, but the showroom sheen on our nine circles comes with heat drying at no additional charge. Right! Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! As far as the pilot episode goes, there's really only two offenders throughout all of this. With all due respect, Avery Schreiber as Captain Manzini is one of them. Never mind the fact that a similarly named character would wind up in one of the worst movies ever made, his character does exemplify a number of characteristics that are worthy of sin. In particular, his manic, almost obsessive desire to complete his car collection by constantly trying to buy Van Dyke's Mother Porter. Some might even say it's a lustful obsession, because who hasn't tried to pine over a classic car before? Also, the fact that he travels the world to collect every single car he can get his hands on before anybody else does is a sure sign of gluttony. And that he's willing to pay any price just to get the cars that he seeks, which also rings the bell for greed. The other offense falls on the wheels of Ma Porter, who, even though she had the best of intentions, butts in more than a Sir Mix-a-Lot video, especially since we really don't know how troubled Van Dyke's family life was before he bought the car. And perhaps if he bought an actual car at the start of the show, things would remain relatively normal. But you heard how upset the wife sounded as Van Dyke bought the car for outlandish, fantastical reasons, and if those reasons didn't exist, yeah, there wouldn't be a show, but chances are the family would have went on to have a perfectly normal life without mother's ghost stirring the pot. Ergo, mother's butting in, and, dare I say, puppeteering of Van Dyke is well-intentioned, but still misguided treachery. As for the series on a whole, in spite of the undeserved reputation as one of the worst TV series of all time, it's still not getting off the hook that easy. The fact that the show was trying to capitalize on existing sitcoms with similar elements, even though it was trying to do its own thing, is just enough of a copycat, parody or otherwise, to be a pale imitator to the more established hits, thus making a marginal case for concept fraud. Not to mention that the show was also trying to compete with those same well-established hits of a fantastical variety. It tried to pull ahead among the pack when it turns out it was a Pinto in Mustang's clothing, marking it for heresy. And even though the show may have been treated a bit unfairly over time, it still didn't stop critics and audiences alike from trashing it whenever it had the chance. Anger is anger, and anger is also wrath. Not half as angry as people once their car's timing belt snaps, but... It ranks pretty high up there. My Mother the Car earns seven out of nine circles of telehell. Though it certainly deserves a place in TV history as an oddity that has to be seen to be believed, its reputation as something bad feels highly unwarranted. Cheesy, maybe. Far-fetched, definitely. But like I said earlier, what one can consider good or bad is all in the eye of the beholder. And while the show itself remains an unfortunate footnote in TV history, thankfully several kinds of phoenixes rose from the ashes after this car got incinerated on TV's highway. Jerry Van Dyke would find steady work in guest star roles until ultimately co-starring on Coach in the 1980s. Avery Schreiber would team up with another top comic in Jack Burns to become the long-standing duo of Burns and Schreiber. 
And as long as we're on the subject of famous Burnses, Alan Burns would team up with James L. Brooks to co-create The Mary Tyler Moore Show, while Chris Hayward would find bigger success producing and writing for the classic Barney Miller. Yes, every cloud does have a silver lining, even if that cloud happens to be carbon monoxide emissions. Still, though, to compare this show to Jerry Springer still feels wrong somehow. Unless... We were to combine the two in a way that will please both classic car fans and unwashed masses alike. And I think I know how. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. The Hell Dome. It's the 185 million annual Mother's Day car crash of Alusa. See all your favorite cars from works of fiction in a series of one-on-one smash-up battle royales. See the bus from the Partridge family take down Miss Frizzle and the Magic School Bus. Come on, get smashing! As the General Lee from the Dukes of Hazard faces off against the tractor from Green Acres. And in the main event, a story that's more fiction than is fact, as the 1928 Porter from My Mother the Car takes on the reigning derby champion, the Mystery Machine from Scooby Doo. Like Space Man! One night only, one night only, one night only! Admission will buy you a seat, but we promise you'll be at the edge of it. The annual Mother's Day Car Crash of Palooza at the Hilldale this Sunday. Sunday, Sunday! Free fire and brimstone for the first 10,000 patrons. Happy Mother's Day from all of us at Telehell. Next time on Telehell. Part one of our season finale, where we take a look at one of two major atrocities perpetrated by our patron saint. They're odder than the odd couple, sunnier than Sonny and Cher. It's me and Key. It's Kay. And Jeff. They're Japan's hottest superstars, Pink Lady in their American TV debut. He's hit comic Jeff Altman. Pink Lady, a new series coming soon on NBC. You bet. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. We here at Telehell would like to thank you, the listeners, for helping us reach an important milestone. Three thousand. And because we've reached that point, 
we've only got one other thing to say to you aside from thank you. No, this has nothing to do with the ghost with the most. We're just looking for an easy way to say that you have a chance to win a piece of America's second most popular premium cable channel. Don't ask us how, but we managed to get our hands on something to help you kill time until the pandemic blows over, or to prepare yourself when it inevitably returns. A 12-disc DVD collection of the Showtime Network's lineup from 2019. That's right. 12 discs, 16 shows, one network. Showtime! A collection of some of the best shows on TV you might not be watching. Shows like Billions with Paul Giamatti, The Late Night Comedy of DeSeuss and Mero, Ray Donovan with Liev Schreiber, Kidding with Jim Carrey, Shameless with William H. Macy, plus a collection of miniseries and specials you can't get on HBO or Cinemax. We only have one of these collections available, and here's how you can win it. Look for a post on our Twitter feed at Telehell Podcast. Then all you have to do is like that post for one entry, and then retweet the post for a second entry. That's it? That's all. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Just like and retweet for a chance to win our grand prize. A 12-disc DVD set of Showtime's TV lineup from 2019. Five runners-up will receive a random Netflix documentary DVD. Don't forget, you can only like and retweet once per user. Once you're in, you're in. All right, everybody, it's showtime! You have between now and May 17, 2020 to enter for a chance to win. And if you are a winner, we get to announce your name on the May 24th season finale episode of Telehell. Remember, like and retweet that post on Twitter at Telehell Podcast for a chance to say to yourself, It's showtime! And now, here is all the legal mumbo-jumbo that we have to put in just to make sure we mean business. No purchase necessary. Contest ends at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time on May 17, 2020. Winners will be drawn the next day and will then be announced on our season finale May 24th. Multiple entries and entries made by Twitter bots may result in disqualification. Winners must confirm their mailing address in order to claim their prize. Failure to verify within 24 hours of drawing will result in forfeiture and alternate winners will be selected. Winners of previous Telehell or TV Tracks radio contests must wait one calendar year before winning again. Employees and relatives of employees of Telehell and Horton Row Productions are not eligible. Showtime Television Networks and Viacom CBS Incorporated are not a sponsor and have nothing to do with this contest. Just a small way of saying thank you for 3,000 downloads from all of us. At Telehell. Showtime excitement. Uh-huh. I'll pump the pump. It's showtime, big 